Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. I'm the author of Rob Worm's Bird Adventure, which is available now. I couldn't be more excited. Uh, this is a story about a little worm who gets scooped up by a robin, but manages to escape her beak only to land on the roof of a human house. How is Rob Worm going to get off that house? How is he going to get back to his bunch in the backyard? It's a whole thrilling adventure, Rob Worm's Bird Adventure, available now. You can also get your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and several books written for older readers under my super secret pen name, Robert Kent. For more information on all of that and more important, for interviews with thousands of authors, editors, literary agents, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. While you're there, you can read a written interview with today's guest, David Ezra Stein. I couldn't be more thrilled. David Ezra Stein, you are a legend in the Kent household because we have gone through three copies of Pouch, and I'm sure parents are, are forever coming up to you and telling you how much um, they and their children uh, uh, love your books, but Pouch has been very well-loved. There are pieces of old copies that have been loved to bits uh, on our shelf, as well as the, the new copy uh, that was bought to replace the, 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 the two previous ones. Um, couldn't be more, more excited to talk with you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be with you and the audience. And yeah, that's, my, that's like music to my ears. I love hearing about books that got loved into pieces. So I'm glad you've gotten so much use out of Pouch and that's one of my many books for young kids. So I have like 20, 20 books at this point, picture books that I've written and illustrated, as well as one book called The Worm Family Has Its Picture Taken, which is about a worm, uh, just like you. Um, and that is the first book that I illustrated for someone else, because I just wanted to see what that would be like. And that story made me laugh a lot. And now I have my first graphic novel out, Iggy Barnes' Egg on the Loose, for six to nine-year-olds and up, I would say. So it feels great to have this in my hand. It's been, it's just came out about two weeks ago. And yeah, it reminds me of like a large chocolate bar shape. <laughs> <laughs> it's delicious. Well, I would argue it's even better than a chocolate bar because a chocolate bar you open up, you only get to eat it the one time. But Beaky Barnes, you can read over and over as many times as you want. Exactly. Uh, there's this one brand that we love to eat that is kind of this size and shape, but it goes in about three days in our household. So, uh, so many uh, questions for you. I was looking over your your extremely impressive biography and thinking, well, where do we do we even begin? Uh, I like to usually begin at the beginning and and, and work our way forward because we know you're going to be a Caldecott winning author. We know that you're going to have a new Apple series available, Interrupting Chicken. Check that out, esteemed audience. But once upon a time. You are a reader who loves books, and you start off drawing on post-it notes because your your mother is an editor who, who leaves these post-it notes around the house. Is that right? Yeah, and I still love that kind of yellow, pale yellow paper. It's great. And the fact that the post-it notes are all stacked on top of each other, so it has a great bounce to it. So when I created this book, Beaky Barnes, um, I, I actually drew on a stack of paper to make the line work. 
so that I would get that nice bouncy feeling. And now that you bring that up, I, I think it probably dates back to the post-it note era. Uh, so yeah, she would she would leave like art supplies and things around. She never said you have to make art. She never, you know, suggested that, but I just kind of found the art supplies and started using them. And I remember drawing in her planner one year where it was just, I just drew on like every page in one day uh, when I was about three years old. So yeah, thing, I guess that was like the, my way of expression because there were these materials around. I just gravitated towards them and started to draw. And I loved hearing stories. And I loved having people read to me because I guess I wanted attention and I wanted to know that they loved me. So, you know, they would, I would pull grownups into my bedroom and just make them read to me before I knew how to read. And I loved sitting on their lap and having the pictures open up in front of me and being absorbed into this other world through the books. And that's what I wanted to imitate in my own work. I wanted to make that beautiful world that I could see in these, in these picture books. Uh, so should I keep on going from there? <laughs> I, could, I mean, that was when I was about three years old. So that was pretty early on. What were some of your most favorite picture books at that age? Uh, the, the Runaway Bunny was one of my favorites. I remember the saturation of the colors in the, in the art was just mind blowing. And I still have this deep reaction to it when I see it now, because it's like so deep in my psyche from having been read it when I was a kid. And I loved how it switched from color to black and white within the same book. Like some pages focus on painting and other pages focus on drawing. So I think I still have that love of both. I love, you know, line work and also painting. Um, <clears throat> some people think that book is controversial because it's because the mother is like following the little bunny around, but it really doesn't bother me. I think very small kids want the reassurance of you know, that their mom is always going to be there, even if they go on some adventure. Uh, if you look at it as an, from an adult perspective, it's a little different maybe. But yeah, then there was like a lot of Dr. Seuss books like Bartholomew and the Ublek, uh, where he was working in pencil back then. And there was like only the Ublek had a color. I guess that was really interesting. Um, and the, and the, the language, like <clears throat> one fish, two fish, the sound of the language and the repetition and the rhyme was really influential to me. Um, the Snowy Day was is just still one of my favorite picture books because of its you know elegance and <clears throat> the way the the text and pictures work together and just the way it brings you into a little kid's perspective and you know this little kid. And what he what he thinks about and what he worries about is just becomes as big as like a, an epic story like Lord of the Rings. But it's like this kid and his snowball melting becomes as big as that. So uh, that was another one, and and on and on and on. But like Frog and Toad and many many books from that time. Little Bear was another favorite. Those have really stayed with me through through my career and. I think they're 
you know, the things that I'm shooting for, the, thing, the type of book that I'm trying to emulate. And the, the, the love and the friendship that's shown in those books is very dear to me. So, and then when I was about 10 years old, I, I remember it very clearly. My aunt and uncle came over and gave me a copy of Calvin and Hobbes, the essential Calvin Hobbes. And that was like a huge revelation to me. So I, instead of socializing with them, I just read the entire book in my bedroom <laughs> as soon as they gave it to me. And it was like, he just got, he just got kids. Like Bill Watterson just understood what a, what a young boy was thinking. And it really, <clears throat> excuse me, it really like, I don't know, I just felt seen by, the, by this character of Calvin and his stuffed animal. I had my, my own stuffed animals and it was like, this guy gets me and cartoons suddenly became like my, my deepest uh, medium, I guess. The, the thing that really encompassed all these ideas from childhood and also like adult ideas creeping in there and more awareness of the world. And, he used such big vocabulary words like halcyon that I had never heard of before. So I kind of, of course, I didn't look them up when I was a kid. I would just skip over them and pretend I knew what they meant. But, uh, but eventually I learned all those vocabulary words in like in the Calvin and Hobbes comics. And they were on a, at least an SAT level of, of vocabulary. Well, sometimes that's the best way to learn those words. And that may, that may be a lost art now that people are reading on their electronic devices and you can just click on it and it will immediately tell you what it means. But just learning the context and then seeing it again elsewhere and you start to start to piece it together. That's right. I think yeah. was a far more interesting way to learn vocabulary words than like uh, memorizing it for the weekly test or whatever. Yeah, flashcards, not as fun. But I, like I said, I didn't look them up. I was too lazy to actually get a dictionary yet. <laughs> so it was like 10 years later when I finally realized what Halcyon means. Uh, but nowadays it's easier. You can just click it and look it up. So yeah, I have a lot of, <clears throat> I have a pedigree of, of comics like Calvin Hobbes and Garfield, I remember spending the whole day just copying Garfield and trying to draw him perfectly and getting all those like back and forth stripes that he has, like the screechy little <laughs> line work. And it was, it was tricky, but I, I was like so devoted to it and so obsessed with it. <clears throat> and like, what else? Tintin was a big part of my life when I was a kid. And there was a lot of things culturally that I didn't understand in there, but you know, it was like a tour of the world through comic books because Tintin goes everywhere. And, and, and there's a lot of vehicles and architecture that's based on real research that they did to create those books. So yeah, the storytelling, the panels, the pacing of everything, the humor, especially of um, like the, the Thompson twins, the detectives who are very bumbling they made it into Beaky Barnes in the form of the inspector, who's this kind of inspector, policeman, 
health inspector guy who is really very bumbling in the story. Um, a lot of his pratfalls and stuff come from Tintin and other things like Marx Brothers movies and uh, Buster Keaton and like old radio shows that I used to listen to when I was a teenager for some reason. <laughs> I was really into Abbott and Costello especially. So for things like my chicken books, Interrupting Chicken, it's basically a dialogue between the dad and the, and the kid, Papa Chicken and the Little Red Chicken. So that came a lot from, the, from listening to old radio programs and where it's like this banter back and forth between the characters. So I'm showing, I'm showing a picture of it right now for the people who are not watching this and they're only listening to it. That's why I'm, I'm sounding kind of distracted. It's an important reminder, esteemed audience, anytime you want, you can hop on YouTube or hop on middlegradeninja.com and, and, and see us. And since we're talking about so much glorious artwork uh, that, that, that's on display, this might be one of the best episodes to hop on and watch. I'll show the original interrupting chicken book here. This one doesn't even have a medal on the cover, I noticed. It could have been from before it won. This could be... First printing. Hmm. Yeah, it is. It's like I just had this in my cupboard for like the last 10, 13 years. Because I've given away all my other copies. I'm curious, did you go through a, a superhero phase as well? Or was it always cartoons and 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 more um more fun? Um type of, of things. Not that superheroes aren't fun, but they're they're a little bit very serious to to adolescents and, and, and now grown adults. Right. <laughs> they're very serious. Uh I did I was into Spider-Man when I was like very young. And I did draw some on some post-it notes. I have a picture of like Catwoman, Spider-Man, and Superman all done as basically like stick figures. And Spider-Man's throwing a web. Because um, I think because they appeared on, well, he appeared on this show, The Electric Company that I used to watch when I was a kid on PBS. So, like, I wasn't allowed to watch commercial TV until I was at least six or seven. And I just started changing the channel. <laughs> when I, was, when I was raised in a, you know, educational, wholesome environment, at least until I was like five or six. Uh, so. When my grandma was babysitting us, my sister and I would just, you know, as soon as she went downstairs, we'd flip the channel over to some cartoon show. But anyway, there was a show called The Electric Company that was about, I think it was about grammar and English. And it was a great show. And they had uh, this crossover with Spider-Man a few times where he appeared on the show as a, as a live actor. So that really blew my mind because I didn't have any access to him otherwise. So he crept into my cartoons and then kids on the playground, you know, they, they would say, I'm Superman. And I would say, me too, you know, even though I didn't really know who that was. And I picked up the, the Batman song nah, 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 from other kids on the playground as well. Uh, but 
yeah, I didn't really have that much of a an interest in superheroes. It was more like later on, maybe my my stepbrother had some uh, X Men comics that I got into, but mostly funny animal comics. And um, I even got into Donald Duck like much more recently through my kids. The old Carl Barks Donald Duck comics were, are just so amazing. And that's been an influence as I start to do my own comics. So yeah, more like funny animals. And I did gravitate towards stuffed animals as my favorite toys also. So I've always had like an affinity for animals and made up stories about my stuffed animals, interviewed them on my radio show that I had when I was a kid. I was about eight years old. I had video show like on a tape recorder or yeah i had a tape recorder and i i just didn't have many outlets for my feelings or you know telling telling anyone what was going on in my life so i would go to my room and just do these long radio shows where i interview my sister or my stuffed animals or her stuffed animals or, and like have callers call in that were fake callers and maybe even some commercials uh, which is which kind of echoes like the the origins of maybe Beaky Barnes because Beaky Barnes has fake ads in it as well that break up the story. Uh, trying to there are some right at the end. I'm trying to find some in the book, but there's some in the beginning, and then there, it's broken up by like an ad for spaghetti dental floss or chicken pedicabs, things that come up in the story. And so that was a big influence too, like watching TV, being a latchkey kid and having my mom working all the time, just watching like daytime TV and seeing these stupid commercials all the time. Uh, it kind of rotted my brain in a good way. And just commercials in general are an amazing like haiku of, of emotion and meaning and like something that has to hit you emotionally in about 20 seconds. Uh, so I think I, I made a study of those without really meaning to. And that does affect how I write a picture book too, like trying to make it immediately uh, hit someone on an emotional level, making it an unforgettable image and telling a story in a short amount of time with very few words, mostly images that all ties into making picture books. So yeah, to be honest, I would have to put television as a big influence in a lot of ways. <laughs> I feel like that's the clip that children should save and show their parents uh, who, who are maybe a little bit uh, reticent about letting them watch television. Like, no, 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 I, I could grow up to be David Ezra Stein. This is, <laughs> this is gonna work out. Good for you. I can't even, yeah, maybe I can't even say that as an author, but. I mean, I'm not saying it was good for me necessarily, just that that's in the mix. It's part of what, part of my influence for sure. So you're, 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 you're very talented. I assume uh, you, you became very talented, but I assume you're, you're a fairly talented kid uh, drawing on everything. It, it becomes apparent that this is something you love. When does that um, become a thing where you say, well, you know what? I could just do this. I could just go on doing this forever. 
uh, really late on. It was like in, in my senior year of college. I didn't. Re- I mean, I was going to college as, a, as an illustration major. So I was thinking about doing art, like applied art as a career, but didn't really have a focus yet. And I realized that doing just doing illustrations for like newspaper articles or something like that or posters wasn't going to get me that far because there's like those jobs don't pay that much and there's thousands of people applying for them and then I suddenly realized well in my children's book illustration class with Pat Cummings the author illustrator I realized that you know I'm a writer too like I had kind of put that aside ever since high school and hadn't really thought of myself as a writer, but I realized I could write things and then illustrate them myself. And I could create my own content in that way and create my own opportunities to illustrate. And so in that class, you know, I, I rediscovered all those early picture books that I, that I was just talking about earlier. I ran to Barnes and Noble because that's where it was near my school. And I just ran to the children's section, took out all these books that I hadn't read in like 20 years. And I literally felt this ray of light just shining down into the children's section. (laughs) And as I was like kneeling there with all the picture books and I said, this is it. I want to do this, (laughs) you know, and because I love these books. And I guess I was too cool to admit it for a long time that I loved picture books. And I wanted to be a serious illustrator that was dark you know, gray and black illustrations with barbed wire and whatever. That was cool back in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I was like, no, actually, I like colorful, bright, friendly artwork that has cute animals and, you know, is, is inviting and really makes you want to enter into the world of the book. Now my rabbit is trying to get into the room now. <laughs> Sorry, Bun Bun. So... <laughs> yeah that was a big influence and you know pat's class was it was really life-changing for me because i had this teacher who was a working children's book author illustrator and she embodied this thing that i just never thought I could make a living at like i never thought you could really do this until i met her so yeah i had a i forgot what the original question was i apologize but um i had a story that I had written in her class for her class that she pulled me aside after class and said you know I can sell this story right now if you want me to and I I was like whoa hold on slow down this is happening too fast as a cautious person I was like whoa I don't know if I can handle this but it it turned out to be my book because Amelia smiled Um, I wrote it in about in senior year of college and tried to sell it. HarperCollins was interested, but they kept on pushing me to make a little bit different art or, you know, get the art right for the project. And I wasn't able to really figure out what I wanted to do with the art at that age. And I was just kind of in the midst of all these influences and learning about different artists and, you know, wasn't really sure what I wanted to be doing yet. So I was trying to please them by illustrating the story in a certain way and 
didn't really it didn't really work for them. They wanted to get someone else to illustrate the story. So I said, no, that's okay. I'll, I want to illustrate it myself. So, so after about six months of trying to get the art right, I just walked away and <clears throat> came back about five years later after many attempts at selling projects and after writing many different book manuscripts and illustrating them and after coming back to Pat's class many times after graduating to meet special guests, like guest editors that they had and guest authors that she had come in and just giving people my postcard with my, my website and stuff. Finally went into Simon and Schuster with the class and there was a portfolio review. <clears throat> and I, I had one of my book dummies there and the editor wanted to buy it. So it took about four or five years after graduation to actually sell my first book. So for those four or five years, are you just kicking yourself that you had HarperCollins right there and you, you walked away, you could have already had your debut? Yes and no. I mean, I really wanted to illustrate it myself as an illustrator. So I guess like, <clears throat> I don't know what would have happened if I had taken that path, but my pride and my, my just determination to illustrate didn't allow me to say yes to that. And I'm kind of glad I didn't just let them have it. Um, I do think collaborating is cool. And like, I wonder what someone else would have illustrated for that story. But I ended up many years later actually illustrating the book and publishing it with Candlewick Press. So, and you know what? I realized that was my, that was like my eighth book. And I realized this is a really hard book to illustrate. And I, and I forgive my younger self for not knowing how to do it because it changes locations and characters on every spread, basically. It passes from one person to another. So to be able to illustrate that in a cohesive way was a really hard assignment, especially when you're just starting out. So no regrets on that. I know at some point in there, you develop a process called Steinlining. And was that yeah. specifically for Amelia or was that for something else and then you ended up using it for Amelia? It was an accident. I was just drawing in my notebook and I had some crayon on the previous page and I pressed on the other side of the page with a pen and then it made a print on the, on the previous spread because the crayon had printed off, on, off the paper. And I thought that was really cool. And I'm always open to discoveries and like playing around with different techniques. So that was where I was at the time. That's where my excitement was. And I followed that and used it to illustrate Amelia which was this very big, complicated project already. But it was a way of turning my pen line into a colorful, textured line. Uh, so <clears throat> yeah, that was a very painstaking process. So I had this like special, there's a video of it on YouTube, but I used a piece of label paper, which is really smooth on one side. And I would cover that with crayon and then flip it over and press on the back with pen to make a 
to make an impression onto the paper underneath. So I couldn't really see what I was drawing while I had the label paper over my watercolor paper. So it was kind of a blind process, but the results were just so exciting that I just had to work that way. So uh, I got myself into something very complicated. I uh, haven't really used it much on other books, but it was but it just seemed to work well for Amelia because because of the like life drawing nature of it because I wanted to set it in the real world, almost like a reportage of different cities as if I had been a tourist in the city just sketching in my sketchbook. And I do that, I do that sometimes. I do go out and draw in, in the city or in public or in the museum. So I was channeling my life drawing reportage aspect for that book because it was set in the real world rather as opposed to like giant chickens wearing clothes or something. <laughs> Uh, with real people and you know it seemed to really suit that project so that's definitely something about me is that I like to switch up my techniques based on the project that I'm doing and what the book seems to call for and a lot of people try to sort of bend what they do to the to the project or bend the project to what they do already but I don't really get that so and I find it exciting to just change it up. So I have, you know, let's see, this is more of a pen and ink style. Hush little bunny. Uh, this is, let's hold it a little higher. This is done with ink and a special pen that has like a marker tip on it. So it makes that nice inky line that's all different weights and stuff. And it has a uh, watercolor. And Interrupting Chicken is much more of its own contained world. So it has like meta levels of things. So the chicken's world is crayon and some China marker and some paint. But then when you go into the storybook world, it's more of a pen and ink kind of situation happening. So in that case, I use different styles to indicate different levels of reality within the story. And then there's still like the chicken style is outside of the book itself. Something, uh, a quote I had read of yours is you can't force an idea to be something it's not. You can only walk with it and get to know it well. So how does that process work when you're walking with these, these, these ideas and getting to know them? Wow, did I say that? Okay, that's cool. <laughs> um, it's basically, you know, trying just writing the story over and over in my sketchbook and until I feel like it's coming into its own. And, and in the art, in the process of finding the art style as well, I'll, I'll spend like, a month just messing around with different techniques until it starts to look like something. Um, and even with characters like don't, in my newest picture book is Don't Worry Murray. So Murray is a dog and I drew about a thousand dogs before I picked what kind of dog Murray would be. 
So it's a lot of trial and error for me. Uh, but I just wanted him to be the doggiest, doggiest like uber dog that you could have, sort of the essence of a dog. So yeah, finding the essence of of the story is similar. Like finding just writing in different voices or different tenses or different points of view until you find the true voice of the story. And it's it's not easy. I've had a couple where just the voice just kind of came to me on the first try, but that doesn't happen that often. I can't really count on it. So, and a lot of times I'll try, like if you try to make the story fit into a certain outline or say it has to go this way, it has to be this, you kind of miss out on the deeper uh, intelligence of, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, this, I guess the subconscious knows more than I do. So if I try to tell it what to do, instead of just following it, it, it isn't as good as it would be. So is that like, um, like a muse that's speaking to you or do you believe that this art exists already someplace and you're bringing it through to this plane or am I talking nonsense and it's really just a, a different process? What, how do you know when you've got it? No, I get, I can be pretty touchy feely about this stuff, but I think, yeah, I do think there are these ideas and books that exist already and I'm trying to get into that. It's sort of like a little capsule that's somewhere in, in the realm of possibility and I'm trying to get in there and find out what's in there. So yeah, any little door that opens, I try to follow it and I also see, I can kind of see the art in my imagination too. Like what, what is it going to look like? But it's kind of far away and, and small and blurry. So yeah, just getting to know the project and like getting to, getting inside of it and then just looking around and seeing what's there. That's, that's how I work most of the time. So when you find Murray, it's not I, David Ezra Stein, have created Murray. It's I have discovered Murray. Murray is Murray, and I found him. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I had the idea to write a book called Don't Worry Murray, but then <clears throat> what is that? Like, who is Murray, and what is his world, and what does he worry about? And so all those things have to kind of come come at one at a time or come on the journey of discovering the project and what it needs to be and then it feels when it feels finished it feels finished like you know you just get this feeling i get this feeling in my stomach that it's like nice warm feeling that it's finished And if an editor comes to you and says, actually, I want you to do this or that, and you say, no, it's finished. My stomach says it's finished. Leave me alone. Yeah, in that case, I, I would. But yeah, like that's usually, that feeling doesn't always come before I show it to the editor. It often comes like after I've worked with her or him for, for a while or had a few back and forths or, you know, I think it's a matter of time. Like it's just, you just get to know the project after a certain amount of time. And um, the editor can definitely help in that process or help to focus you or, cause like 
everything is such a first impression when you're writing something you're just you know you just wrote it that morning and you don't have perspective on it really so it's great to have an outside person saying like hmm, i see it i see it in a more long-term way like maybe that line isn't as important as the rest of it or you know getting that feedback in the in the early stages of something can be helpful but uh if i really feel like it's done i'm gonna fight for it yeah i'm not gonna, i'm not gonna back down <laughs> i mean at this point you're caldecott winning uh author david ezra stein you've got a show on apple i mean at, at, at this point fairly people say oh if you feel strongly about this let me just back off you haven't been wrong so far <laughs> let's see how this pays out right yeah i hear you i mean i think I feel like I'm starting over pretty much every time I do a book and I, and people are surprised to hear that, I think, but it really is a humbling experience to try to create something that nobody's seen before. You don't know what it's supposed to be until you, you know, until it starts feeling like something. So yeah, I don't consider myself like the all-knowing David Ezra Stein, more of just the David Ezra Stein who's open to learning something and finding out something. And that's more exciting probably than knowing everything. That's probably a much, much healthier approach. <laughs> that makes sense. When, uh, so when you switch now to, well, not switch, but now that you're uh, taking on graphic novels, and I assume that this is the first of many to come, is this, is this going to be a new, the, the David Ezra Stein graphic novel era? Or I, is this was just right for this? Or Well, there is another Beaky Barnes coming out in the fall this year. So... <clears throat> Piggy Barnes and the Devious Duck is going to be the second one. And that's all finished. We're, we're basically doing the cover now. And that's the rest of it is done. Thank God. Because <laughs> it's 128 pages of acrylic painting. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then I, I would love to do some more. And I love these characters. And it's just so exciting to, to write a novel because I've never really... I never really realized that a graphic novel is actually a novel and it has as many kind of threads and ins and outs and storylines in it as a novel has. And everything has to resolve somehow. Everything has to have an inner logic. Um, so it's a really fun realm to play around in. And I'll still be doing picture books at the same time, but I'd love to do more graphics. I have a bunch of ideas that I'm working on for uh, like one that's based on some historical things and what else? Yeah, a few, like some other just totally silly graphic novels that I want to do. Uh, but at this point in my career, it's really fun to find other genres of books to work in and you know, just see what that's like and call upon my more maybe a little more cynical, like eight-year-old self instead of my four-year-old self in making books. <laughs> so a little more sarcasm, more humor, more context uh, that I feel I can do in comics and graphic novels rather than picture books.
And do you have like, I don't know, like a bucket list or a grand plan where, okay, now I do the graphic novels and then next I do, do, do you have like uh, uh, ambitions for projects that you're hoping to do at some point or different mediums you want to work in? Yeah, well, I'm very interested in music and theater. So I've done, I've actually started doing community theater again recently. I was in a musical last year, like for the first time ever. Uh, so that was kind of desires that I had back from like way back in, I don't know, high school or earlier that never got fulfilled. So that was cool. And yeah, like I'd like to maybe write a musical. That's one thing. Um, Interrupting Chicken was actually made into a musical by Theater Works uh, musical, along with some other books like Dragons Love Tacos. And it was a fantastic show. So I got to see that. Uh, that was really cool. But yeah, collaborating with more people, getting into other genres of art and other media like music. I've collaborated with a composer in my area, I think it was, yeah, last year to create a musical for kids that also had some puppetry in it. Um, but I'm always looking for opportunities to branch out and try new stuff. And bucket list, like it's it's a lot about just what I love and what things I want to emulate. So yeah, like I love Frog and Toad and I love like Rabbit and Robot by CC Bell and a lot of a lot of readers. So I'm trying to write some early readers too right now. And basically it's a it's an homage. It's like just trying to imitate what I like. <laughs> so I love so many different things that I feel like I have to work in different genres to sort of tip my hat to all those things. When you're uh, collaborating, like obviously you can't draw every frame of the Apple Plus show for Interrupting Chicken. Um, I don't know how involved you are. So when you're seeing other artists drawing your chickens, is that an exciting feeling of, oh, go chicken, spread your wings. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've, you found a new home. Or is it a little bit of, hey, that's mine. <laughs> Get your hands off my chicken. Uh, I was the executive producer. So I did have like, I had the ability to comment on everything, but I didn't actually draw anything or write anything. So that was definitely a new experience and had its, it had some fear going along with it, but I think they really did a great job for, for making the chickens into a TV show. And it's really, you know, kind of perfect for what it is. Like, I like the scripts are great and the, and the backgrounds are beautiful and it really looks good. It doesn't look like the book as much because the book is so painterly and it'd be hard to animate something like that. And I think that's kind of nice to have two different animals where, you know, my book is always gonna be its own thing and it's not exactly the show. Um, but I've learned a lot from just reading like 25 TV scripts too. So doing other shows could be fun. Uh, I have some ideas for that too. Yeah, so it's just part of the learning process. I had to, I had to um, intentionally just say, let's just see where this goes and like let go of it. Because as you said, like 
most of my stuff has been done just by me and putting it out there and just saying like, here, watch my chicken for, for the weekend. You know, like it's, it takes some, some courage. Uh, but I just thought, I won't listen to my fears. I'll listen to my hopes and I'll just see where it goes. And the next thing I knew, I had a show. It's pretty cool. I know, of course, you've done a lot of work with uh, puppets and, and puppeteering, and you and your wife do uh, shows both live for schools, and you'll do it on Zoom. Uh, is that a nice collaboration where you get to work with someone I, I assume you love <laughs> and, and putting on a, a story? Is yeah, that yeah. a nice change of pace from when it's just you and and, and, and working alone on, on, on your stuff? Yeah, it's been really fun. It took a few years to like write the show and make the puppets, which are marionettes and shadow puppets. Um, and she did a lot of that. She influenced me a lot on like how to make lightweight puppets out of foam instead of wood, which is what I was going to use. And I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> uh, and she's she has a whole set of talents that, you know, she's actually re really good at theater and singing and 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 creating like working with fabric and so creating the chickens costumes and outside parts and i had more of knowledge of writing the script and building the inside of the puppets making them to make them work so the two of us together we have a lot of fun when we visit kids and put on a show for them and i and i you know i love the immediacy of a, a show as opposed to like writing a book and sending it out into the world and waiting for people to read it and then waiting for them to say something about it. It's nice to have the, the live show just in front of an audience and get their reaction right away. Uh, it's, that's really a pleasure and it's a good counterpoint to the rest of what I do. I know you guys have uh, two children in addition to the the bunny. So are they at the phase where they they like the puppet show and you can put the show on or a different show on at, at home for them? Or have they reached the phase of, oh, my God, mom and dad, that's so embarrassing. Please put your chicken puppets away. <laughs> they're, they're nine and 13. So they're sort of in between. And they're very, they're very nice kids. Like they haven't rebelled that much so far. Well, my daughter is uh my daughter wants to bleach her hair now she's nine so we're we're not letting her do that <laughs> but um they, they also enjoy playing with the puppets so that like if we just leave out the set and the puppets they'll put on their own shows and we've had some really funny videos of them just improvising stuff and i think they appreciate the silliness of it and you know the creativity of it so they're not totally embarrassed yet. We'll see what happens in a couple of years. Well, probably like most adolescents, they'll be briefly embarrassed by everything that you ever do. And then they'll come back around like, oh, you know what, growing up with, uh, in a family where interrupting chicken was, well, we had, we, we, we had, we had David Ezra Stein right there the whole time, all through our childhood. This was actually kind of magical. And then they'll be telling stories forever. The legend of how nice it was to grow up with the, with the puppets and the art and everything, right? Ah, well, that would be nice. I mean, I just want them to have a, a good life and pursue their talent. And, you know, my daughter's really into dance. So she's 
dancing like three or four times a week and she just does it for fun at home and my son is very good at music and all kinds of things like animation so yeah just I think just seeing parents that are creative is going to be you know a good role model for them and show them possibilities but then they have to kind of steer themselves towards what they are interested in it's good that they're creative and inclined. I can't think of anything more frustrating than being in a house of artists and being like with secret burning ambitions to be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know about my son. He may become like a, an engineer or something. He really, he loves to draw maps and create worlds and like name stations on subways and things like that. So, and design like station platforms. <laughs> So he may be the engineer. He has a lot of that in his in his DNA from like his grandparents and stuff. So we'll see. I'll, I'll, whatever he wants to do is okay with me, as long as he loves it. You know, uh, at this point, your your books have been uh, translated into Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Spanish. Just. Uh, um, more languages than not, almost. Uh, they are available worldwide. And of course, um, because they're so art-centric, these are um, stories that uh, transcend. Even if you didn't have the, the the translation there, you would still be able to pick it up and still get the vibe of the story and the, and the characters and feel that. So do you have a sense of how much of an impact these stories have had worldwide? Do you get to hear from your, your readers? Somewhat, yeah. I, I do hear from people on Facebook, like some teachers that in Mexico that posted a version of Interrupting Chicken the other day, and they had their kid read the chicken, and they read the, one of them was the narrator, the other parent was the dad. So it was in Spanish, and I hadn't really read the book in Spanish carefully, although I, I do like understand some Spanish, but Seeing that, seeing it read in Spanish on the on the YouTube was really cool. I mean, it was amazing, and just the fact that they did it as a family was very sweet. And so, yeah, I do get some glimpses into those things. I hear more from people in America, but you know, I know my a lot of my books are in China and and in Korea, so it'd be nice to hear more from those people and maybe even visit at some point. Uh, in, in an adventurous kind of way, that would be exciting. Do you feel like uh, like you're a part? I mean, it's, it's a very intimate thing being a, a book that a parent's going to read to their child, um, just like you know the, the, the adults used to read to you. Do you feel that um, you have some sort of responsibility because you've been uh, a part of the lives of all of these young readers or is that is that separate and apart from you and not really your business and you'll just be over here doing what you want and I'm, I'm glad that that you all had that <laughs> that's a good question I mean I guess I don't really think about it that much except when I'm writing maybe it occurs to me but and when people tell me that they really enjoy the books you know, I, I'm honored by that. And it's, it's nice to be in that, in that hug with everybody. Like they're, you know, cuddling up with the book. And it's just nice to be part of that ritual. It's kind of too amazing to really think about most of the time, I guess. Like being 
being that much of an important part of someone's childhood is an honor and it's really a beautiful thing and yeah I, I guess I'm mostly just writing for myself so like to 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 find the right version of the story and to make it itself and it has to be something that's coming from within me so when it when it fits into people's lives so nicely it's really an honor and a special thing i suppose it would be uh, paralyzing if you were taking all of the weight of that on yourself every day you're getting up and you're you're going to the drawing board to create something new right yeah and i do try to write about like issues that are happening and things that i really care about and it doesn't always happen for me like because I think it has to come from within me and some part, some part of me that the part that really makes books like may not agree with my head and where my head is at and what what I've what I've really heard is like an ill of society that I want to address. Yeah, you know, I can I can try, but it's it's very difficult and it's not as natural as just trying to write something loving and funny that people can read together um so i'm struggling with that right now because there's a bunch of issues i want to write about and haven't found the exact right like vehicle for that as a picture book but i'm not going to give up on that i never give up on projects really they just they could sit there for 10 years and then i'll eventually know what to do with them so you have, uh, I assume, then uh, little 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 bits of project here and there that you that have been um, brewing on back burners while you're working on uh, on egg on the loose and, and other things. Oh yeah, yeah, I have many sketchbooks that probably have 150 sketchbooks of ideas and pieces of things, and a lot of times they do without my even meaning to. They kind of morph into another form, and then they become a book. When I look back, I say, oh, that's where that came from. Like, it was a different name, it was a different character, but the same kind of idea became one of my actual published books. And then there's many, many, like I go through probably two large sketchbooks a year, at least. So there's many other projects that are brewing and waiting for their moment or characters that don't have a story yet, or like, subjects that I want to write about that are all in there and I have to even just remember that they're in there. Do they come forward and let you know when it's time? It's time to do my story. Today is the day. Or is it just your editor calls up and says, hey, we'd really love to do this kind of project. Like, oh, you know what? I have one of those. Let me let me grab it. Uh, I think it is. Yeah, it has its time. and. I'm hoping for some characters, I've had them for like 12 years now. I'm just like, man, when is this going when am I going to know what the story is for this character? But I don't give up. I keep on trying to put them into different stories and find out who they are. And like, for example, with Elephant of Surprise, that's an interrupting chicken book. I had this idea for an elephant of surprise for a long time even before the first chicken book came out. 
but I didn't know what to do with the elephant. And then I realized if I put it into the chicken book, it'll be this really good chemistry. And like, that's where the elephant finally found its home in an interrupting chicken book. Oh, this is cool. I haven't even seen this, but they put, they put like some crayon decorations in the beginning that I haven't seen. <laughs> nice. The paperback version, so it's different than what I've seen. But yeah, that's one case where that, that elephant probably sat around for 12 years before I knew what to do with it. Do you know what it is that uh, has you so interested in chickens? Is it has it become the brand, or have you always been gravitating toward chickens? Do you foresee, obviously, at least one more graphic novel with Beaky Barnes, but do you foresee more chickens in your future? I think I'm going to avoid the chickens because I'm getting to be the chicken guy now. <laughs> <laughs> but I just happen to have these characters that are chickens and needed to be in a story, so... Beaky is not the same as the little red chicken. Uh, it wouldn't have worked as well with like a Gila monster or something because I, I guess they lay eggs too, but I needed to have a character who lays an egg. And chickens are just funny. And she clucks instead of talking throughout the whole, you know, series. So she's, she's the main character, but she only says cluck basically. <laughs> for 128 pages. <laughs> um, so I thought that was really fun to just have this character who, you know, she just clucks and you have to guess how she's feeling by the context and what she's doing. And it's a funny noise. Chickens just sound funny and they walk funny and, they, and the word chicken is funny. So it's a pretty tempting package to put into a book. But yeah, I think uh, the next one is, is mainly about a duck. So I got away from the chickens somewhat in the sequel. Well, esteemed audience uh, knows I have to ask because I ask everyone whoever comes on the show. Uh, David Ezra Stein, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? I think I saw a flying saucer one year, but it was during the 4th of July. Uh, I was... I was in the attic of my aunt and uncle's house looking out the window at the fireworks because it was in Brooklyn and the, there was just fireworks everywhere back then. So like every block had this storm of fireworks and suddenly I just saw this thing moving laterally that had lights on it. I was like, I don't think that's a firework because they don't go sideways and it was hovering over the neighborhood. So that's probably the closest I've come to what I'm, I thought was a UFO. I uh, have not seen anything like that since then. That sounds pretty conclusive to me. <laughs> yeah, it's like the real, the real deal. <laughs> I think I just came to check out the, the show because it noticed all the lights. <laughs> Have you, because you have such an incredible ability as an artist, have you reproduced it? Um, have you sketched it, drawn it? No, that's a fun idea. I haven't tried. It's a very vivid image in my mind. So, When you create the picture book about that experience, deep in the acknowledgments, like right toward the end, I just want you to briefly mention my name because I mentioned it on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. 
<laughs> well, you have been very generous with your time, and this has been just a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you, you making time for me and for esteemed audience. Uh, for today, my final question, although you're going to keep writing books um, and you're going to keep producing things, so hopefully we'll get together and we'll do this again sometime. Uh, but for today, my, uh, my final question for you is if you could go back toward the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have made the biggest impact for you and might make uh, easier the paths of everybody who's watching or listening to us, what advice would you go back and, and give yourself? Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah, not I guess not to take things too seriously and just have fun making art and have fun making stories and and also believe that the story is going to come into its own at some point so you don't have to like be labor your you don't have to be labor and over discipline yourself to create something but just kind of bring bring joy to it and have a well-balanced life and uh also, I mean, you also have to work hard, but uh, not in a way that makes you suffer. So work hard in a way that, that fills you with joy and like, I'm glad to be drawing the same chicken a hundred times to get the, <laughs> to get the perfect sketch. Yeah, there's going to be some suffering, but, I'm just, but I think the attitude towards, towards creating is not that you have to force yourself to sit at a desk all day or something like that. It's more like living a well-balanced life and having a life of the body as well and going out and seeing art and music and taking in the world and, you know using that to feed yourself as an artist not necessarily treating yourself as like a, a grunt who just has to work all the time i think that's the perfect note to end on where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, they're all slightly different, but basically David Ezra Stein is my handle there. So you can get in touch there, follow me, find out what's going on. I have a newsletter also that's going out through Substack. So you can sign up for that to find out, you know, the month by month of what's happening. And I also have an Etsy store where I sell prints from all my books, as well as maybe selling some original stuff soon. So it'd be great to see you on any of those channels. And as always, esteemed audience, uh, for more interviews almost as good as this one, head to middlegradeninja.com purchase your copy of Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. It will change your life at God Willing, I'm Alive. I'll see you next week.